I had a friend in school who never liked to operate within the rules. Our school didn't allow long hair, but over the summer he grew his hair long. And when school restarted in September and the headmaster insisted that my friend cut his hair, he went home that day and shaved it completely off, which also wasn't allowed. Another time he sat down to an English exam and there were two essay questions on the sheet, A and B. We had to pick one and write an answer. Well, my friend didn't like question A or question B, so on his exam paper he wrote his own question C and answered on that. Needless to say, the exam didn't go well for him. He may have preferred answering question C, but question C wasn't an option. There were only two options, A or B. Of course, we hear that little story and we see how ridiculous it is, although it did actually happen. We can see it's a ridiculous thing to do. We can see it couldn't have a good outcome. But what we might not see is how easily we can try to live our life that way. According to the Bible, there is only one option for how we live as God's people. We're called to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. But all of us have a tendency to try and add another option of our own creation and live that way. There are many places where Scripture speaks about the futility of trying to make up another option for our lives. And this morning we come to one of those passages as we turn again to the book of James. If you turn with me to James chapter 4, which you'll find on page 1215, or in the larger print Bibles, 1883. I'm going to look at a passage where James makes it very clear as Christians, we are called to one love. Last time we ended at chapter 4, verse 3. This morning we're going to look at chapter 4, verses 4 to 10. James says in verse 4, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. This is God's Word. And as we look at this passage, the first thing we need to be clear on is who James is writing to. We need to be clear that these people are Christians. So far in this letter, James has referred to them six times as my brothers and sisters, meaning my brothers and sisters in Christ. The NIV translates one of those as my fellow believers. And three times, James has called them my dear brothers and sisters. So in one sense, James has no doubt about where these people stand. But what he sees in them is a tendency to try and create their own option for how they live. And James wants to remind them pretty forcefully in these verses, that is not an option. In verse 4, he calls them, you adulterous people. Now, you might wonder, does he mean then that the married people in the church were having sex with people they are not married to? That is the technical definition of adultery. 
And it's the first thing we tend to think of when we hear the word adultery. But as far as the Bible is concerned, marriage between human beings and adultery between human beings are actually pictures of much greater realities. Throughout the Bible, the relationship between God and His people is described as a marriage. We saw that in our reading earlier from Isaiah 54. Through Isaiah, God says to His people, your maker is your husband. And that idea isn't limited to just a few isolated passages. One of the big themes in the Bible is the covenant between God and His people. And the best way to understand that covenant is to think of it as a marriage covenant. Just as when a man and woman enter into marriage, they commit to exclusive loyalty to one another, so God and His people commit to exclusive loyalty. God and His people are not the same, but they are united, and they commit to be faithful to one another. And just by the way, that is one reason why homosexual marriage can never be true marriage. Marriage was created by God in part to teach us about His relationship with His people. And only a marriage between a man and a woman can do that. Because men and women are not the same. But they become joined together. Just like God and His people. And also, by the way, that is why the transgender movement is so harmful. Because it tries to obliterate the difference between male and female. But the Bible celebrates the difference. In part, the Bible celebrates the difference because of the insight it gives into God's love and commitment to us. Who are so different from Him. When we lose the difference between male and female, actually we're losing our best way of grasping the wonder that we who are so different from God can be united to Him in genuine intimacy. And as I say that, I'm not intending to brush aside the reality of homosexual attraction or of gender dysphoria. I'm not intending to deny how significant those issues are can be, and how much difficulty and pain can be involved, I'm simply making the point that there is a reason why God made us male and female. There's a reason why God made marriage between male and female. And if we abandon those gifts from God, actually we lose our ability to grasp God's love for us. Because that's why he gave those gifts. And the loss is incalculable if we do away with those things. Losing our ability to grasp God's love is not worth any short-term gratification of our inclinations. And so coming back now to James' words here in verse 4, now we're able to understand the background to what he's saying here. Our relationship with God is such a significant thing that unfaithfulness to Him is actually adultery. How might these people have been unfaithful? How might you and I be unfaithful? Well, in verse 4, James goes on to call it friendship with the world. Often when the New Testament speaks about the world... It means something more than just this planet that we live on. It means sinful humanity and its rebellion against God. So to be a friend of this world does not mean you're into environmental issues, nor does it mean you're friends with people who live in this world. No, biblically, to be a friend of this world means you share in the outlook And the priorities of this world. You look at things the same way as this rebellious world does. Today, maybe largely thanks to Facebook, the word friend has lost a lot of its meaning. 
We can be friends with people we barely know and barely even care about. But in the culture James is writing to, friendship involved sharing everything together. And that's why in the same verse here, James can call what these Christians are doing adultery. It's that serious. Their friendship with the world is unfaithfulness to God because it's leading them to share the outlook and priorities of this world. And the passage we looked at last week, James summarized what those priorities and what that outlook is. Envy and selfish ambition. Getting what you want. And this planet, resources are always going to be limited. So to be a friend of this world means agreeing with this world that what matters most is me getting my share. It might be my share of luxury and pleasure and leisure. Or, if I've got a slightly different personality, it might be my share of power and clout and recognition. My share can mean lots of different things to us. Because as human beings, we want lots of different things. But to be a friend of this world means that what drives me is getting what I want. Whatever that happens to be. And isn't that what James was pinpointing at the beginning of this chapter? When he said back in verse 1 of chapter 4, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. I don't think these Christians would have called themselves friends of this world. I don't think they had made any conscious commitment to turn from God and choose this world instead. I imagine they would be shocked to read these words from James. They would be shocked to be called adulterers. But the problem is, they're claiming to love God while drifting into this world's outlook and attitudes. And it's being seen in their actions, in the envy and the selfish ambition that's spreading through them like a cancer as they quarrel and fight with one another. These people are imagining, maybe without even think about, thinking about it, they're imagining they can be a friend of God and a friend of this world. But James says in verse 4, that's not an option. He says in the middle of the verse, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. We can all be tempted to think, of course, I can love God while spending my energy and my resources serving envy and selfish ambition. Of course, that's possible. You may have heard about the wife who became exasperated because her husband ignored her until finally she said to him, you never tell me you love me. At which point the husband looked up from the TV and said, when we got married, I told you I loved you. If anything ever changes, I'll let you know. Now that's supposed to be a joke, but it's not really very funny. Because that husband had the mistaken idea that a marriage relationship is something you sign up to, and then you get on with focusing on other things. Because all that needed to be taken care of was taken care of on the wedding day. What a sad misunderstanding of marriage. And what a sad misunderstanding of our relationship with God. As if we could take care of that relationship when we prayed a prayer one day, years ago, signing on to a relationship with God, and now we can focus on other things. That is certainly not how God views His relationship with us. Look at verse 5. 
Do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? It's a tricky verse to make sense of, but we can make sense of it when we remember how Scripture presents God's relationship with us as a marriage. And like any good husband, God has a good and healthy jealousy for the health of his marriage to his people. He loves his people deeply. The relationship matters deeply to him. And so God is not careless about the relationship. He's not content to see it being disrupted. He's not relaxed to see another lover steal away the spice he loves so much. And here, the spirit he has caused to dwell in us may mean the Holy Spirit God has given us, or it could be referring to the life God has breathed into us as human beings. Either way, the point is basically the same. God has invested in his relationship with his people. Day by day, God continues to be fully committed to us. And he calls us to that same ongoing commitment. No human marriage will thrive if one of the spices says, I told you on my wedding day that I loved you, and that should be enough. And that approach doesn't work any better when it comes to our relationship with God. And so James says to us, choose to love God again. Yes, there was a time in the past when he came to you and he found you. Yes, he poured out his love on you, showing you the way of salvation in Christ and calling you to himself. And yes, in the past, you responded to God's love by giving your life to him and committing to live for him. But that commitment has to be renewed day by day. If it's not, you'll drift. The relationship will cool and your heart will begin to wander you will begin to develop an adulterous friendship with this world. Envy and selfish ambition will begin to seem like the obvious way to live. The obvious way to make your decisions. James says, don't let that happen. Choose to love God again. And the beauty is, verse 6 as we renew our commitment, God gives us more grace. That's repeated in the quotation in verse 6 from Proverbs. Literally, he shows grace to the humble. It's the same word both times. So our God, who is so invested in this relationship, so jealous for its success, every time we turn our wandering hearts back to him, he is on the front foot to meet us with grace. We needn't fear rejection. But James also wants us to see forgiveness is not easy. It's not just about having a sweet thought about God each morning. Faithfulness in human marriage is harder than that. If we think back to the husband we heard about earlier, who saw no need to invest in his relationship with his wife, his marriage would not be significantly improved just by batting his eyelids at her every morning or giving her a daily peck on the cheek. Choosing to love is a serious business. It's a costly commitment. It impacts our life. And in verses 7 to 10, that's what James wants us to see about our relationship with God. We have to fight to be faithful, enjoying God's grace. At the end of verse 6, James said God shows grace to the humble. And in these verses, he explains what it means to be humble. We did hear about humility uh, last week. 
It shows itself in deeds that sow peace around us. That's what it means to be humble towards others. But what does it mean to be humble towards God? And how does that fit with the picture of a marriage relationship? Well, having said that our human marriage illustrates our relationship with God, or that human marriage in general illustrates that relationship, we also have to understand human marriage is not exactly the same as our relationship with God. No illustration is exactly the same as what it's illustrating. And the fact is, human marriage is always a relationship between two flawed, imperfect people. In some situations, one spouse will be better equipped to know what to do. In other situations, the other spouse will have more insight or skill. In many situations, both spouses are floundering. And that is true, whatever we might say about men and women's roles and how they complement each other. The Bible does have things to say about that. The Bible does expect husbands to take responsibility and lead. But still, when we say that human marriage illustrates God's relationship with his people, we dare not press that comparison too far. If we do press it, it just breaks down. Because unlike any human husband, God is perfectly wise. He is perfectly pure. And he is perfectly then deserving to be obeyed. Any human husband leads in spite of his flaws. Any wife submits to her husband in spite of his flaws. But with God, it is entirely different. It is both the right thing and the very best thing for God's dearly loved people to submit to him. As James calls us to do in verse 7. That's what verse 6 meant when it called us to humility. Humility before God means we lay aside our big ideas about how clever we are. And we accept the reality that we know very little at all. While he knows everything. It's obvious that we ought to submit to him in obedience. And if we are going to do that, still in verse 7, we have to resist the devil. The need to do that goes all the way back to the first chapters of the Bible. When Adam and Eve decided to trust the snake's word rather than to trust God's word. They chose to believe the snake when he promised that disobeying God would be good for them. That it would be liberating. The result, of course, was not good or liberating for them. They lost the close relationship they had been enjoying with God, and they lost the beautiful environment God had given them to enjoy. And ever since, the snake has hung around, also known as Satan, also known as the devil. He has hung around throughout the ages, continuing his work to destroy us by trying to convince us to disobey the God who truly loves us. That's what Satan's up to. Sometimes he does his work by trying to sweet-talk us, whispering promises in our ear, like he did with Adam and Eve. Other times Satan comes in a rage, trying to bully us into disobedience through persecution or fear. But always, as God's people, our responsibility is to resist him. We don't accept his authority, either to sweet-talk us or bully us. But we do understand he's a powerful and persistent enemy. We take him seriously. John Calvin pointed out, it can often feel to us like the more bravely we resist Satan, the sharper we feel his pressure. Fighting never seems to weary him. 
He can be beaten in one engagement and at once take up another, coming at us from a different angle. For many people, the devil has just become a joke. But Christians know resisting the devil is no joke at all. The Apostle Paul said it's such a serious business, we need a full set of spiritual armor for it. You can read about that armor in Ephesians chapter 6. It's no accident the book of Revelation pictures Satan as a dragon. Maybe no one else takes him seriously, but as Christians we mustn't make that mistake. And yet, as powerful as he is and as persistent as he is, verse 7 promises If we commit to resisting the devil, he will flee from us. As Calvin goes on to say, even if the devil brings attack after attack, he must go away if he's not allowed in. Adam and Eve find out the attractive option in the moment will often be to resist God and submit to the devil. But fighting to be faithful means we keep reminding ourselves who truly loves us and who only wants to destroy us. And that will lead us to resist the devil. And verse 8, it will lead us to come near to God. And the beautiful thing is that as we do, we will find him coming near to us. He loves us. He doesn't need to be asked twice to come near us. He doesn't have to be coaxed. He doesn't have to be cajoled. God is on the front foot to come near us when we come near to him. Jesus pictured his father that way in the parable of the prodigal son. The son turned for home. The father said of running down the road. And in the final verses, we learn that coming near to God goes hand in hand with turning from sin. Look how James defines coming near to God in the middle of verse 8. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. To understand these verses, we have to trace them back to the Old Testament. The Old Testament priests were given symbolic rituals to perform before they entered God's presence in the temple. And one of those rituals was they had to wash their hands. It wasn't particularly because of hygiene. It was a symbol of setting aside sinful actions. When we do something, it is generally with our hands that we do it. So the priests came to God with clean hands, indicating they had turned away from sinful actions to clean actions. And those clean actions were evidence of a purified heart. And so here, James is saying not it's important for God's people to wash their hands, but It's important for us to keep turning away from the sin that makes our heart and our actions grimy and greasy with evil, with selfishness. Wash your hands and purify your hearts means confess your sin and turn your back on it. Don't get comfortable with it in your life. Don't keep a place for it in your actions. Don't keep a compartment for it in your heart. Coming near to God means a commitment to purify ourselves from sin. Of course, when we first come to God and put our faith in Jesus, we come just as we are with all of our sin. And God accepts us just as we are. We don't clean up our lives first. We come as we are, and he forgives our sin because of Jesus. 
But as we then move forward from that point, we can never hope to experience nearness to God. We can never hope to enjoy relationship with Him if we're going to be double-minded about sin. Hedging our bets on it. Keeping a few pet sins in our life. Thinking we can indulge in a little bit of sin on the side. No human marriage relationship is going to flourish if one of the people in that marriage has another lover on the side. And it's no different when it comes to us and God. There's no room for double-mindedness about sin. There's no room for sin on the side. Is that a fact that you personally need to consider today? Have you been living with the attitude of, yes, I'll fight to be faithful, Lord, but not in that part of my life? Everywhere but there. I'm keeping that sin as my bit on the side. that's the case, can you see how your efforts to come near to God are going to be frustrated again and again? So long as you refuse to wash your hands of some area of sin. Someone has said, the man or woman who wants to keep their garden tidy doesn't reserve a plot for weeds. That would be ridiculous. To give up the enjoyment of a beautiful garden just because you couldn't bear to eradicate the weeds. But we do the same with our enjoyment of intimacy with God when we try and reserve a plot for sin in our lives. And if we're going to give up being double-minded about sin, we need to learn to hate it. We need to learn to see it as God sees it. And he sees it for what it is. The evil intruder that sours our enjoyment of his love. And as we begin to see that, we will do what verse 9 describes. We will grieve, mourn, and wail over our sin. We will change our laughter to mourning and our joy to gloom. Not permanently, but until we've let go of our sin, turned from it, and come back to the God who loves us, the one our sin was separating us from. In the Old Testament, the fool is the person who doesn't take truly serious things seriously. The fool is not a person lacking in intelligence. It's the person who doesn't know when to be serious. The fool laughs about everything. Life is a joke to him or her. But the wise man or woman knows there are times to set aside superficial joy and mourn instead. And our sin is certainly a reason to do that. As we see it for what it is, it will lead us, as verse 10 says, to humble ourselves before the Lord. Admitting our sin, forsaking it, and asking again for his forgiveness. And the beauty is, when you and I sober up in that way, when we fight to be faithful, then we experience true joy and laughter. As our God comes near to us, as he lifts us up, into the enjoyment of his grace. So as God's people, men and women who have been welcomed into relationship with him through faith in Jesus, let's hear the call this morning to choose to love our God again. Let's remember there's no option to love God and this world. Yes, we live in this world, we work for good in this world, 
We appreciate so many good things in this world, but we must not take on the outlook and the mindset of this world. That is the point where we fight to be faithful. And as we recommit to that, let's remind ourselves the fight to be faithful is infinitely worth it. As we fight to be faithful, we enjoy God's presence and love. Not just in the future, but now, in our lives today. So let's respond to his word by celebrating God's love. Love shown through Jesus. Love that lifted us. Love that continues to lift us every time we turn to him. A love that then moves us to give him everything in return. We'll sing, I stand amazed. And then the goodness of God.
Father, your love came first. And in response to your marvelous, wonderful love, we give ourselves to you again. And trusting in your power, we commit ourselves to the fight for faithfulness this week. And now, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. See the King of Love, see the purple robe and crown of thorns he wears. Soldiers mock, rulers sneer as he lifts the cruel cross. Lone and friendless now, he climbs towards the hill. We worship at your feet, where wrath and mercy meet, and the guilty world is washed by love's pure stream. For us he was made sin, oh help me take it.
From your death our life shall spring By your resurrection power we shall rise We worship at your feet Where wrath and mercy meet And the guilty world is washed by love's pure stream I will.